God's instruction is available to us in his word, inspired Holy Scripture. His teaching is for our good to spare us problems and pitfalls that accompany sin. Some make the Bible an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. One of its central lessons is that we need to learn to admit our limitations and let God be God, instead of supposing we qualify for that job. Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. That's where we get that saying, pride goes before a fall. Behaving in a proud way can set us up for a nasty downfall, a rude awakening to our own limitations. It's deer season. Rob was telling us at staff meeting about his deer deer beard. Uh, I guess I've got a deer beard, but of a different sort. Anyway, some catch deer with bows, some with guns, and unfortunately some with their bumpers and windshields. Right, Steve? Uh, Those who succeed in hunting may be tempted, if they're a bit proud, to brag about what a fine animal they bagged, but that can land them in their own trap. Bruce Morrow found himself in a heap of trouble. He won the Texas Big Game Awards of 1995-96 by entering a 12-point set of deer antlers. He said he shot the buck in South Texas. Prosecutors, however, said he didn't bag it, he bought it. And he lied when he filled out the entry form for the state-run contest. Morrow went on trial in Austin on three charges of tampering with a government record. If convicted, he would get two years in jail All this for a contest that paid no monetary prize, only bragging rights. Ah, the high price of pride. It can also tempt us to act smarter than we really are for the sake of making a favorable impression. A certain young man took his date to a very chic Italian restaurant in an effort to impress her. After sipping some fine wine, he picked up the menu and proceeded to order, as if he came there all the time and actually knew what he was doing. We'll have the Giuseppe Spamducci, he said. Sorry, sir, said the waiter. That's the proprietor. (laughs) Today's the third Sunday of Advent, traditionally linked to joy. Our Bible passage from Zephaniah suggests that we can find joy both in God's deliverance for us and his delight in us. But to truly rejoice requires humility, letting go our pride, acknowledging our need of our Savior Jesus, letting him be Lord in our life, instead of proudly trying to run our own show. Now, it's tempting to pounce into the last half of the last chapter of the book of Zephaniah and just focus on the part that talks about joy. That would mean ignoring the context of all the rest of the book. So let's fill in the setting here a bit. Zephaniah tells us he was the great-grandson of good King Hezekiah, and prophesied during the reign of King Josiah of Judah, 604 to 609 B.C., if you've got your mental timeline going there. He prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, capital of Assyria, which happened in 612 B.C., so we can likely narrow down the time frame a bit more to say between 640 to 620 B.C. Here's Jesus here, B.C. over here. Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians about 100 years earlier in 722 B.C., In the south, wicked King Manasseh had reigned 55 years, that's a long reign for a king, following Zephaniah, the prophet's great-grandfather Hezekiah, who was 697 to 640, oh, sorry, Manasseh was 697 to 642. 
Conditions had really gone downhill morally in the country of Judah under Manasseh's leadership. New Bible Dictionary summarizes that there was a time of religious retrogression, going backwards, a syncretism of Baalism, a cult of a start at the high places, astral worship with spiritism and divination. His long reign was bloody and reactionary and notorious for the introduction of illegal altars into the temple courts and the passing of his sons through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, end quote. How devilish is that, burning your kids as sacrifices to God? God was obviously upset with the state of affairs. Much of the first couple of chapters of Zephaniah prophesies destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and surrounding areas for rebelling against God. Some people may have been getting richer during Manasseh's long reign, but oppression and deceit were rampant. So the prophet warns of God's wrath, fierce anger, and jealousy. 1, 15, 18, 2, 2, and 3, 8. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you, I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. No, it's not just about wrath and anger, bad enough as those are, but jealous anger. As if somebody's intruding upon God's relationship with his people and luring his bride away to be unfaithful. Somebody's horning in on the gal that's rightfully his, stirring up jealousy rightfully because the one who is precious to him is being drawn away. What's intruding upon the Jewish people's affections that would lure them away from true worship? We can categorize the competition chiefly under three headings, idols or imposters, power, and self. We begin to see this dynamic wasn't just true back then, it happens still today in our culture. The idols or imposters, not true gods, include Baal worshippers, 1 verse 4, astrologers, those who worship the starry host, 1 verse 5, and hypocrites are the compromisers or duplicitous, those who swear by both Yahweh and Molech, that God to whom children were sacrificed in the flames, 1.5. Some people were superstitious, avoiding stepping on the threshold of the doorway, perhaps in deference to the Philistine god Dagon. Now the names may have changed, but people still worship similar idols today. Baal and Astarte were fertility gods. Much media is slanted sexually today, and people gobble it up. Marriages are wrecked by infidelity. Astrology is popular. When was the last time you saw someone on social media share their horoscope? And unfortunately, religious folks still compromise, feigning worship of God on Sunday, but during the week, greed and lust and the idols of materialism govern their choices. God's judgment is also aimed at those craving power in Zephaniah's time. 1 verse 8. I'll punish the princes and the king's sons. One eleven. All your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be ruined. One seventeen. I'll bring distress on the people and they'll walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. 
3, 1 and 3. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Those who are powerful now, who are wealthy now, if they have oppressed others to obtain their wealth in their lands, will someday answer to him who is more powerful still. So, those who worship idols, those who are corruptly powerful, the third category God seems to be preparing for judgment is those who are selfish. They have rejected God's leadership for their lives and are charting their own independent course. One six. I will cut off from this place those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. One nine. All who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. One twelve. That time I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think, ah, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. In other words, today we might hear it said, ah, God's irrelevant. We can just leave him out of the equation altogether. If we put self first, we are proud. And it becomes easy to look down on those who seem to need religion for a crutch. 2.10 This is what they will get in return for their pride, for insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty. Now, 2.15 is about Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the main empire at that time about seven centuries before Christ. But does not this describe much of Western society today? Listen closely. What do you think? 2.15. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am. There is none besides me. As if to say, who needs God? I'm my own self-made person. The world revolves around me. Such a proud, selfish attitude results in rebellion and refusal to acknowledge God. 3.2. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Again in 3.11. Those who are proud are the targets of God's judgment. On that day I'll remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. Dictionary definition of haughty on vocabulary.com says, someone who is haughty is arrogant and full of pride. When you're haughty, you have a big attitude and act like you're better than other people. A haughty person acts superior and looks down on others. The word even sounds a little like its meaning. It's hard to say haughty. Everybody say haughty. Haughty. Without sounding like you have an attitude, end quote. Do you know anybody like that? You want to spend one millisecond more around them than you absolutely have to? Idolaters, power-hungry, those who are selfish. God's anger and jealousy is directed at such folk. This is a theme in both Old and New Testaments. Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him will I not endure, God says. Proverbs 16, 5. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And coming to the New Testament, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Gary was praying there for our unity. God be glorified in that. In harmony with one another. Do not be proud, 
but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. There's another synonym for proud, thinking too much of yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the love chapter. Love does not boast. It is not what? Proud. That's love and proud do not belong together. James 4, 6 contrasts Jesus' way of grace with pride. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Being puffed up is a good thing if you're doing your Christmas baking when it comes to croissants and Pillsbury rolls in the oven but it's pretty obnoxious and intolerable in people's attitude. Now, with that as backdrop, we can now turn to today's scripture reading and see, by contrast, those whom God desires to save and protect rather than destroy. For these people, God's coming brings rejoicing and preservation instead of judgment and destruction. Through faith in Jesus, we can begin to appreciate not only his deliverance for us, but his delight in us, too. 3.14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He's going to tell us how to do that. Let's look first at God's deliverance outlined here. 3.15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The prophet's time, a fierce horse-mounted people called the Scythians came from southern Russia and thrust south along the Mediterranean, destroying Philistine cities along the coast and advancing as far as Egypt before Pharaoh bought them off, basically. So Judah was spared their attack. Zephaniah may also be recalling how the Assyrian army threatened Jerusalem in the time of his own great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, but 185,000 soldiers were suddenly, mysteriously killed, and the city was delivered. In 612 BC, Nineveh itself, Assyria's capital, was sacked by the Babylonians. This great imperial capital was so erased from the landscape that its location was unknown until discovered by modern excavators. How has God delivered us who believe in Jesus 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior, Christ Jesus, has destroyed death, hallelujah, and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Another instance of deliverance is Zephaniah 3.19, at that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. Does Jesus help those who are oppressed? Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Zephaniah 3.19 continues, I'll rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. Jesus healed many people during his ministry. Even afterwards, the apostles carried on this ministry of deliverance. For example, the, the man crippled from birth who was laid every day at a gate of the temple. Acts 3, 6-8 recalls, And Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And he went with him into the temple, walking and jumping and praising God. Whether through our body's natural processes or with medical or supernatural help, the Lord still mercifully brings the deliverance of physical healing today. I heard of a woman whose 
Shoulder was healed during a worship time here not long ago. Praise God. Zephaniah continues in 3.19. I'll give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. Does God bring honor to those who give their lives to Christ? The Apostle Paul writes about such on the day of judgment. Not those who are self-seeking and reject the truth. See Romans 2.8-10. For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Wrath isn't just an Old Testament thing. God is God, and we see that in the New Testament too. Wrath is there. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God brings praise and honor to his people. And in 3.20, Zephaniah speaks of God's gathering of those who are scattered to other lands by their enemies. He would bring them back to Israel. 3.20, at that time I'll gather you. At that time I will bring you home. And he did bring them back after Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. and they were exiled to Babylon 70 years later. He brought them back to Palestine. Does God have a permanent home waiting for us who trust in Jesus? He promised his disciples in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Revelation 21.3 describes heaven this way, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the best thing about heaven. Not streets of gold or harps or anything like that, but God's presence with us. So those are all aspects of God's deliverance for us. But this passage talks about something even more incredible. God's delight in us. God loves you for you. Let's park a moment on 3.17. Can we read this one all together? The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And again, from the New Living Translation, carry on here. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. What a contrast to the image of God in some other religions. One moment, the prophet is picturing one mighty to save, NRSV, a warrior who gives victory. Then the image shifts to one singing a love song over his beloved, the one he rejoices in, delights in with gladness. So precious. When you give your life to Jesus, the spiritual ugliness is washed away. You are made clean and new and alive, filled with God's Holy Spirit, His gifts and fruit kindled fresh inside you. Gone is sin's scumminess, the shame and guilt. Your Creator and Redeemer finds you altogether beautiful, totally worthy to be celebrated, feted, because the Father loves the Son's reflection He sees in you. Psalm 147, 11. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. 
he gets excited about you. Jesus gave us a word picture of this rejoicing in the parable of the shepherds finding one lost sheep. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. Never forget how precious you are to God. He exalts in you as his dearly loved child. So, it's important to love God not just for his deliverance, what he can do for us, but even more because of who he is, seeing us for who we are becoming by his grace through Christ. Love God not just for his gifts, but for himself. Rejoice that he delights in you. Don't just worship him for what he can do for you. That's missing the point. Pride goes before a fall, as we've seen. Sometimes people tend to be proud and boastful in an attempt to make up for a sense of insecurity. They're trying to impress upon others they really are adequate. But truly great people tend to be surprisingly humble. Who in the Old Testament, for example, would be considered greater than Moses? But Numbers 12.3 adds as a sort of side note, now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. When we're assured God delights in us, as we've seen from Zephaniah, that quells our incessant self-doubts about our adequacy frees us from the need to be proud or boastful in an attempt to wow others and shore up our own shaky self-esteem. We are free to be humble, to, to serve others, to rest in God's steadfast love for us. We've nothing to prove. Zephaniah 2.3 tells us whom God is positively disposed towards, the, the people who need not fear his wrath and judgment. Zephaniah 2.3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the Lord, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Submit to his ways, be obedient, do his commands. That's, and seek what's right. But above all, seek humility. Uh, there's a par- parallel here to Micah 6, 8, which is really a classic verse in Old Testament prophecy, and I think you've probably heard it before. Let's read this one together too. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, seek, act justly is similar to seek righteousness, a very similar concept, justice and righteousness in both Old Testament and New Testament. But walk humbly with your God. Chapter 3 of Zephaniah fleshes out a bit more some characteristics of the humble, 3.12. But I'll leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Hmm. Are we trusting in God or do we always have to have our own hands on the steering wheel? One symptom of pride is always having to be in control. When our life seems out of control, can we be humble and trust God to bring about his purposes for our life? Zephaniah 3.7 I said to the city, surely, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Correction or corruption? James notes, 
God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Submission's a bit of a dirty word in today's independence vaunting culture. Humility helps us submit and accept God's correction. God disciplines those he loves. Humility and a desire to seek righteousness will also flavor the way we talk. Zephaniah 3.13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They'll speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. Can people trust what you say? What has all this to do with Christmas? We see humility reflected in the nativity story. Jesus' mother Mary showed humility when she responded to the angel Gabriel's announcement that she would become pregnant and bear a son. Boy, have I got news for you. Luke 1.38, how would you respond? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. A bit later, her joy explodes in the song known as the Magnificat when she sang Luke 1.47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the, say it with me, humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up who? The humble, yes. Mary gets it. Also in the nativity story, God chose humble shepherds to hear the news of the birth. Shepherds who were at the very bottom rung of the social order at that time. Yet they obediently hurried off to see the sight and proceeded to spread the word. Are we humble enough to tell others about the Savior born for them? Our Lord Jesus epitomized humility. What was Jesus' definition of greatness? Make a lot of money? Get lots of land. How do you define greatness? Once he had a boy stand among the disciples and said, Matthew 18, 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Christ's invitation to us is found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That's your master speaking. And you will find rest for your souls. Sometimes we need to stop our striving and let God be God. Pause to bow before him and make sure we are enthroning him above all other priorities and impostors. Our ethic as Christ followers should be shot through with humility. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Two, three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Ooh. Not selfie style, look at me, but count others better. Five short verses later, Paul links this to Jesus' own attitude and Jesus' incarnation and human likeness. That's nativity, that's him coming to earth to be one of us. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That death purchased your deliverance from hell because God delights in you. Speaking of selfies, last weekend my son Keith and I were in Missouri upon the request of his childhood best friend who invited us to attend his ordination into the Disciples of Christ denomination. It was an honor to be there. Before flying out Monday, Keith and I visited the 603-foot-high stainless steel gateway arch, one of St. Louis's most notable tourist attractions. 
It's also known as Jefferson Expansion National Monument. The museum at the base of the arch celebrated then-President Thomas Jefferson's foresight in acquiring the territory which greatly increased his lands and ba- nation's land base and prospects. So here we are at the arch. There's uh, the statue of President Jefferson uh, in the museum underneath. And this is the Louisiana Purchase. You can see what about a third of America, basically, uh, they just wanted, to, first the states just wanted to buy New Orleans, and France came back and said, hey, have we got a deal for you? And so they ended up buying that whole slice. Thomas Jefferson wrote the epitaph for his own grave. It says, here is buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom and father of the University of Virginia, end quote. Know something he left out? He neglected to mention he was once president of the United States. God knows who you are. What matters most to him is not whether you were ever president or prime minister or even head of your class. What matters to him is whether you humble yourself and come to him as a little child, ready to love him with all your being. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Let's pray. Lord, it's so hard to pry our fingers off the steering wheel to let you be in control. Lord, we know we've made a mess of it at times, and we need you so much in our lives. Thank you for Jesus coming to free us, to deliver us from sin's grip to destroy death, and to bring us into relationship with you. Or help us to rejoice as the shepherds did, as Mary did, knowing the, the wonder of you being active in our lives. To you be glory.